Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Southern Spectre Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah, and as always, thanks for listening. On today's episode, we'll be taking a little road trip down to Louisiana to find just what the bayou has in store. It's time to pull up a chair, settle in, and cozy up for the Southern Spectre Podcast. Enjoy. Located in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and built in 1796 by General David Bradford, the Myrtles Plantation is a former antebellum plantation and one of much history soaked in its walls. The plantation sits upon a hill facing off to the east and is built in the style of Creole Cottage, which is the style of what many Louisiana plantations homes of the 19th century were built. Originally, the house was built with six bays and three dormers donning the roof, that is, until the 1850s when the house was extended southward and nearly doubling in its size. The Myrtles Plantation is equipped with 22 rooms spread over two floors, a hall that runs the entire length of the home, a French baccarat crystal chandelier that weighs more than 300 pounds, and a catalevered staircase. The home sits on over 600 acres of land and was named Laurel Grove. General David Bradford, the home's builder, lived there for years alone until President John Adams had pardoned Bradford for his part he played in the Pennsylvania Whiskey Rebellion in 1799. Later, he would move his wife, Elizabeth, and their five children into the home. When Bradford passed in 1808, his widowed bride, Elizabeth, continued to operate the plantation until 1817 when she passed the torch to Clark Woodruff who happened to be a former student of her late husband's and had went on to marry their daughter Sarah Matilda. Clark and Sarah had three children together Africa Gale, James, and Mary Octavia. Sarah Matilda and two of her children would pass later in 1823 and 1824 due to yellow fever. Elizabeth Bradford passed in 1831, at which time Clark Woodford, along with his surviving child Mary Octavia, would move from Myrtles and on to Covington, Louisiana, leaving behind a caretaker for the plantation. Then, in 1834, Woodruff sold the plantation and all of its properties and amenities to Ruffin Gray Sterling. Sterling, along with his wife, Mary Catherine Cobb, performed a massive remodeling of the home, nearly doubling it in size, and filled the home with furniture imported from Europe. The couple changed the name of the home from Laurel Grove to the Myrtles, 
named of course after the lovely crepe myrtles that grew about the home. Sterling passed away in 1854 and left the plantation to his wife. Having survived the American Civil War, although it was now robbed of its furnishings and accessories, Mary Sterling hired William Drew Winter to help keep order to the plantation and grounds as her lawyer. Winter was married to Sterling's daughter, Sarah, and they bore six children. One of their children, Kate Winter, died from typhoid fever at the tender age of three. The Winters were forced to sell the home in 1868 due to the family fortune being lost after the war because it was tied up in Confederate currency. However, they obtained it back two years later. William Winter would die on his own front porch by a suspected E.S. Weber in 1871. The story goes that William Winter was shot on his front porch and staggered inside the home and died trying to climb up the stairs. He died precisely on the 17th step. Sarah stayed at the plantation along with her mother and siblings where she died in 1878. Mary Sterling died in 1880 and the home was handed down to her son, Stephen. Piled under mounds of debt, Stephen would go on to sell the home again in 1886 to Oren Brooks, who then sold it in 1889. In 1891, it was bought by Harrison Milton Williams. Later, in the early part of the 20th century, the plantation, along with all of its belongings, would be divvied between Harrison Williams' heirs. Then in 1950s, the house alone was purchased by Marjorie Munson, who began to take notice to a number of strange goings-on around the grounds and the home. Then changing hands a number of times until the 1970s, where it was once again purchased by James and Francis Myers, who also transformed the home into a bed and breakfast. Francis Myers, whose pen name was Francis Kermine, began writing a book about the Myrtles naming it the most haunted house in America. Now, current owners John and Tita Moss have opened the home to tours and even overnight guests. Supposedly, the plantation has been built on an ancient Tunica Indian burial ground. If this is the case, I can only imagine the disturbance so many homeowners have made over the years. Rumor has it that a young Native American woman has been seen roaming the grounds. The home boasts a staggering 12 ghosts and 10 supposed murders, but historical records indicate only one murder, and that was William Winter after being shot on his front porch and dying on the 17th step on the staircase. Some claim to have heard his dying footsteps near the stairs. Legend, however, says that during the Civil War, Union soldiers destroyed the house, leaving a trail of chaos behind them, and three of them were killed in the home. Some say, there is even a blood stain in one of the doorways around the same size of a human body that will no matter what 
will not come clean, even going as far as that the cleaners can't even mop or push their broom into the spot. By far, the most famous of all these haunts and happenings here at Myrtle's Plantation is the ghost that goes by the name of Chloe. Chloe was supposedly a slave, once owned by the Woodruffs. Some stories lay claim to the fact the Clark Woodruff had strong-armed Chloe into being his mistress. After the two lovers were caught by Clark's wife, Sarah, Sarah cut off one of Chloe's ears and was forced to wear a green turban to conceal it. In her revenge, Chloe has supposedly baked a delicious cake blended with the extract from boiled oleander leaves, which happens to be extremely deadly. Some stories lay claim that Chloe was going to poison the family, but then play hero once she gave them the antidote. However the story goes, whether for revenge or to regain her household status, Sarah, along with two of her daughters, were the only ones to have eaten the cake, and all three died. Chloe was hanged for her crimes once she was found out, and she was thrown into the Mississippi River. Of course, historical records don't support these stories, as there's no records of the Woodruffs owning any slaves. Even so, some still believe that a woman named Chloe haunts the Myrtle's plantation, and of course, she wears a green turban. Legend also says that somewhere in the house is a mirror that holds the spirits of Sarah Woodruff and two of her children. Customarily, mirrors would be covered and concealed after someone's death, and after their supposed poisonings, the mirror trapped their spirits. Sarah and her children are known to leave handprints in the mirror. Also, the spirit of a young girl who died sometime in 1868 after being treated by a voodoo doctor is said to roam the home. She is said to appear in the room where she passed and is said to practice voodoo on people sleeping in her room. So if you care to book a night at the Myrtle's Plantation, why not give it a go? But to me, it seems like the kind of place where you check in, but you don't check out. The Rougarou a full moon lingers over the Louisiana bayou. You can hear the croak of the frogs in the still night air. Hear a splash from an old catfish rolling on the water. See the flicker of the lightning bugs as they grace us with their presence. The cypress trees casting wicked looking shadows on the ground. Was that a howl? Like a wolf? A howling wolf here in Louisiana? Couldn't be, could it? With all this beautiful landscape that Mother Nature has blessed us with, a legend hides the darker side of the swamp land. There's a legend here of a snarling beast 
that roams about known as the Rougarou. Going back for centuries now, and with many variations, just like with most legends, our first look at this dark creature, we travel back to medieval France. Back when the plague was all over Europe, we find nefarious beasts known as Loupgarous, which were known to be the werewolves of France at the time. They would be known to roam about the countryside. When most bad things happened back then, with no logical explanation for it, well, most folks would chalk it up to the loop guru. On occasion, villagers and town folks would come across someone lurking in the woods or just on the edge of town, acting very strange, and of course, they would be accused of being a werewolf or loop guru. The nearest town's appointed officials would hold court to determine what would happen with these so-called werewolves. They would ask the public what they believed, and going along with the tales they had heard, they would of course be on board, believing, without a shadow of a doubt, the accused were of course loop gurus. Mainly as they didn't want to be accused themselves of being a werewolf or a witch perhaps. Children were terrorized and frightened into good behavior, believing the loop guru would come snatch them from their beds if they weren't on their best behavior. So when the French made their way to Canada and then to the southern U.S., of course, the legends, tales, and first-hand encounters with the loop guru came along. So when the Cajun dialect came along, which is of course a mix between French and English, the word loop guru became Rougarou. The modern day Rougarou has reportedly made his home near Acadiana and the greater New Orleans area. Cajun lore says that the beast has a natural tendency to roam about looking for Catholics who don't adhere to the rules of Lent. Some believe that the Rougarou is a person who has been affected with a 101-day curse, and the only way to rid themselves of this curse is to give it to another person. The local witch or voodoo priestess of the area is believed to have cursed the person. Thirteen small objects or trinkets laying near your door is how you're supposed to protect yourself and keep the Rougarou at bay. So apparently, it is believed that when a person is changed into a Rougarou, that they forget how to count past twelve. And so that's why this trick works. They'll lose count on the thirteenth object not knowing what to count to next and spend all night trying to figure it out. And of course, they must flee before sunrise. Sounds a lot like the Boohag from the Gullah Geechee culture, except they were obsessed with broom straws and counting those. Even today, there are those that believe the Rougarou is still roaming about, and those that claim that they've seen 
the creature firsthand. Louisiana hosts an annual Rougarou Festival, and Huma, the Audubon Zoo, has a Rougarou exhibit which includes a statue of the creature. So if you ever find yourself down in Louisiana and it just so happens to be a full moon, best not go walking about the swamp too far, or you may come face to face with a Rougarou. Alright ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Southern Spectre Podcast. Hope you guys enjoy those two tales straight from Louisiana Swamps for you right there. Um, Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Southern Spectre and you can follow me on Facebook at the Southern Spectre Podcast. I wish all all you guys the best of luck this year. Keep your head up. Stay safe. It's a crazy world we live in out there. Um, I got a couple of, I think, pretty massive episodes coming up. I'd like to, uh, it's taking me some quite some time to get a hold of them. So you guys stick around for that. So until we meet again, you guys stay safe. I love you. <laughs>